Welcome back to the Resurrection Church Podcast. I am here for a final interview with Brian Blazowski, pastor of Richfield Bible Church. Brian, thanks for being back on the podcast. No worries. It's always good to be here. Now, um, people might not know that this is the same day recording for all of the Blazowski files here. Um, so you haven't come back every single day. But um, thank you for giving us your time to talk about the Bible. Um, you care about the Bible so much that you've been working on telling the story of the Bible, um, I think maybe in book form, but especially in video form uh, that you've made available on your website. Can you tell us a little bit about that series and then how anyone interested could access it? Sure. Uh, so my heart for the story of Scripture um, and, and knowing it and being able to teach about it goes back a long way uh, when I was teaching at a Bible college in Wisconsin. Uh, it became uh, the opening class that we would have for every student who's coming. People coming from all kinds of different backgrounds, different understandings of uh, levels of understanding of the Bible. And so our opening class was called Creation and Consummation. That was the kind of the course that I came up with and, and taught where we'd walk through the whole story of Scripture in one class. And people would read about a third of the Bible from all portions of the Bible, and I would just try to walk people through the story. The goal was to say, what is the Bible? What is the Bible about? That was kind of the heart of it. But then also the sub-theme of the whole thing was, how can I be a better reader of the Bible? Mm -hmm. And so <clears throat> I got to teach that for, for several years, and uh, really up until about the time that the school closed. And then when I uh, moved out to Minnesota, it was still just something I want to do, I want to write about, want to teach about. And so I've looked for different opportunities, you know, to try to, to try to do that. And what happened in our own church uh, up in Richfield is that uh, during the COVID first, like, initial lockdowns of everything, I was trying to think of, like, what I could do that might be helpful for our people. It had been—I had been working with some different publishing options, you know, seeing if maybe this would get picked up as a book, and maybe it will someday, but when the COVID things happened— I thought, you know, I should just try to record th these things in shorter clips and make it available for people in our church, and then people can get it for free, you know, who, who would like it. And so, uh, yeah, that's, that's already about two years ago, I suppose. And uh, yeah, I've just been recording video, you know, they're videos, but this basically just me, you know, just talking through things. And then uh, I think most people use it through podcasts that we have, you know, it's available basically everywhere. It's called The Story of Scripture. It's available on our website. You can just look up Story of Scripture on different, you know, Google or Apple Podcasts, things like that. But the basic gist is it answers those questions. What is the Bible? Focus on what is the Bible about? And throughout the whole thing, trying to help people enjoy reading the Bible and learn how to read it better um, with greater interest, with greater insight. And the clips uh, are typically in the range of 10 to 15 minutes. Early on, they were more like 15. The ones I've done more recently are more like in the range of like 10 minutes. And uh, like in the Old Testament, for example, we did 16, I think, major topics uh, walking consecutively through the through the Old Testament. Uh, but each of those is broken down into maybe five or six clips mm -hmm. so that they're more manageable. You know, so um, there were 96 clips on the Old Testament. You know, and then I am hoping, actually, we're here at the end of 2022 when I'm talking with you, and I hope by the 
end of this next week to actually finish the New Testament. I'm within striking distance of finishing the New Testament, uh, which will come in at probably like 60 or 70 clips. And so so it actually walks pretty detailed through the whole story of Scripture, but it's all focused on the story, on the unfolding story and how to read the Bible. And then after I finished the Old Testament, I went back and I thought, you know, this is, this is long. Like, uh, So I took those 16 major topics that we had covered in 96 sessions, if you will, and did 16 like three-minute talks. Okay. And we called that the shorter story. And uh, that's like 96 minutes. So that okay. was kind of like the blurb, you know. You can that's do great. 96 sessions or you can do 96 minutes to start with. To just If you just want a really quick overview, that could be like people, someone who has never read anything of the Bible could just do the shorter hmm. story. And then they could go back. And there's a reading list there that I've mentioned, I think, a couple of times, you know, that actually gives about a third of the Bible, very select, that would help you read through the whole story, all the different genres, all the different kinds of things in the Bible that would track with that okay. um, story that I'm telling you. So somebody could conceivably say, I, three nights a week, am going to read these texts and watch the video that goes along with it, and in a year, get through all of those videos with plenty of cushion sure. along the way. <laughs> Absolutely, yep. And it's available at richfieldbiblechurch.com. If you look at study with us or story of scripture, like it's it's really easy to find on there. And then it's on it's on YouTube is where it's hosted, you know, for the video part. Yep. And then there's the the podcast, which is what most people have, have used. Yeah, that might be convenient for while you're going around or whatever else. Sure. But and you can speed me speed me up. Yeah. You know, I always tell people when they listen to our church podcast, listen at two speed because I talk so slow. Mm-hmm. Um, you'll get through it way faster mm-hmm. and you'll still get everything yep. that you need. But well, thanks for working on that resource. I know you're primarily thinking of the members and attenders of Richfield Bible Church, but I think it, it'll be helpful for people beyond yeah. that congregation. And, and I had so appreciated all the students that I had over the years, you know, who helped me, you know, mm-hmm. to understand the story better, just through the, all the interaction that we had. And I thought of them as well, you know, just wanting to be a blessing and make it available. Yeah. Well, um, as we're talking about reading the Bible, I think a topic that comes up frequently is Bible translation. Um, is there a translation that is the best translation in the world, Brian, and that everybody should be using? Or would you maybe give us a different way of thinking about Bible translations? I mean, I think Bible translations are a huge blessing to the church. You know, I, to think if we didn't have them, what what life would be like for for us, it would be really, really hard. We'd all be taking Greek with you. We would be. Uh, but even then, <laughs> it would be uh, pretty sad, and yeah. we would not know God as well. Mm-hmm. And I think that's something important to remember in the whole Bible translation discussion and just how much of a blessing it is. And when you get another context, and um, you know, there's only one translation available, mm-hmm. and it's not very good. And how, or maybe there's only the New Testament, and there's no Old Testament available in the heart language of the people. Like, you just start thinking about those things, um, you know, and how much we've been blessed. I think sometimes there's maybe too much of a focus on English, producing more English translations yep. instead of trying to focus more on improving existing translations in other languages mm-hmm. or providing supplementary ones. But, but so I, I like to start there. But yeah, I think we are blessed with a lot of great translations. I mean, I love 
using all all kinds of them. I love listening to all kinds of different translations. Uh, so just as one example, I've been going through Jeremiah um, at our church, not like verse by verse, but definitely more than just like taking like five familiar passages somewhere, mm-hmm. you know, maybe like the 25 sermon target or something for Jeremiah. But but in preparation for that, or even before I knew I was going to do that, I just started studying Jeremiah by listening to it, just because I knew I didn't know it. That was like the main thing that I, my joke is I, the one thing I knew about it is I don't know this book very well, 52 chapters, longest book in the Bible by word count. And I just, it's very hard to follow. It's still very hard to follow even after yeah. I spent a lot of time, but I just started to listen to it. And I've basically been listening to it for the last two years. Like that's like almost the beginning of every day is just listening to some of Jeremiah, a couple chapters. And I've listened to so many different translations, so many different kinds of translations of it. And it is really, really helpful uh, to be able to have access to these. They have different aims. They have different target audiences. You have to keep that in mind. That's why the translations are different. It has largely to do with their aims and their audience. And it's a real blessing. These are these are the word of God for us. Uh, we don't have to doubt I'm not saying there can't be a translation that is so ill-motivated or something that it would be problematic and not helpful, but but I think these translations that are being done to try to help people understand God and his word, we should be really thankful for them, and I would encourage people to use a lot of them. Mm-hmm. Um, and the more that we have access to, the more you should use them and, and compare, because you maybe don't have access or, or, or the knowledge firsthand of the original languages, but you can gain a lot by just looking at how the different translations are handling because tr- there is no like translations always involving interpretation mm-hmm. that's something that people maybe don't realize until they start to learn another language or learn greek or hebrew or something but but anybody who is translating from english into spanish you know at some event they are not just there's they are interpreting yeah. And they're putting it out then in the target language in a way that they hope communicates the same way, the same kinds of things that it yep. did, but but it's and, not and a add, formula. Add to that 2,000 plus years and a lot of texts, and there's cultural differences. There's a lot that takes place. Mm-hmm. Now, I think one of the values of comparing translations is you you get to see where translators differ, and that kind of alerts you to there might actually mm-hmm. be an interpretation question. Yeah. So sometimes we think of translation differences as, oh, they're putting this at a lower level, reading Mm -hmm. level or something. And that might be true, Mm -hmm. but often those differences are interpretive questions, and that should spur us on to investigate a little more deeply. I think maybe a danger would be we just pick the one that feels right to us, you know, without any um, justification for that decision. But what study tools would you point people to as they're reading different translations, seeing differences? How how can they move forward there? Yeah, um, and maybe just going back real quick on the on the translation, just to give some more specifics. I mean, the translations that I like to use, for example, we use the ESV in our church. I enjoy it. Um, I think it's a, a good translation. It's a little more uh, traditional sounding. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that's just you know. So that is there some benefit to that? And it's theological vocabulary. There's some barriers that it creates too. Mm-hmm. It doesn't read as smoothly, especially when you're looking at people who are uh, English is a foreign language for them. So it's not as easy to read and understand as like the NIV or maybe even the CSB, which is what I think you guys use yeah. here at Resurrection. Those are great translations. You know, this morning on my way here, I was listening to Jeremiah in the NLT, 
you know, and it's yeah. a lot more, uh, there's these terms, uh, formal equivalence and functional equivalence. I think those are actually really helpful terms. Uh, formal equivalence just means that whatever the form is in the original language, if you can, you're trying to keep it more, like you put more emphasis on trying to keep that same form in the target language. So like if it was a participle, like an ing word, you know, uh, in Greek, then you will try to keep it as a participle in English if you can, if it still makes some sense in yeah. English. Like if you lean that way, that's formal equivalence. And functional equivalence is more of how did it communicate to the original audience? Can I replicate that feel, yeah. the, that function in the target audience? And, the, and you can probably imagine just by hearing that, like which translations lean one way or another. And so I think sometimes there's too much criticism of translations because they're not factoring in like what their priorities are or what yeah. their audience is. And, and one more plug for translation is, is uh, the international children's version. Yeah. I love it. Uh, I get it for my kids. We provide it for kids in our church. Um, it is a translation that is targeted at about a second grade reading level. Okay. It's a, but it's a real translation of the whole Bible. It's, but the difference is it's targeted at second grade instead okay. of typically like the maybe 12 to 14 year old um, target audience uh, that's used by a lot of translations. <clears throat> and that itself just limits the vocabulary, limits the complexity of sentence mm -hmm. structures and things like that. But it's a real translation and kids can understand it a lot better. So, so just on the translations, I would, I would go with those things. Yeah. Um, and, and obviously the more functional uh, you know, the opposite side of the formal, the functional ones will involve more interpretive decisions Absolutely. on the parts of the translators. And we can be thankful that a lot of the publishers putting these translations out are like conservative sure. theologically. And even though they might make some interpretive decisions that we would you know, say, ah, based on all of my study, I would interpret mm -hmm. that a little differently and therefore translate it differently. It's not like those interpretive decisions are leading someone away from the larger meaning of the Bible mm -hmm. or the message of the gospel or something yeah, like absolutely. that. Yep. And, and a lot of times, even in those ones that tend towards the function focus, they will put in, the, in a footnote, mm -hmm. you know, it'll say something like, it might use the word literally, which I tend to avoid a little yeah. bit, but it'll, it'll use a word like that and say, you know, so in Romans 5, 1, it, they'll say, since we've been justified by faith, but they'll say, you know, literally having been justified by faith, yeah. you know, but, but everybody knows that Paul's communicating the idea of since we've been justified yeah. by faith. And so often you'll get that just in the footnotes. Um, certainly as far as resources, we, we're blessed with a lot of great study Bibles. I mean, some of the ones that are out like NIV study Bible, ESV study Bible, various others that have come out, those are really, really helpful because the intro to the book is really, really good. And, and as uh, there's been more emphasis, we, we've been talking about story of scripture kind of things. The last decade to two decades, there's been a lot more emphasis on that. Uh, a lot of times, even in those intro things, they'll try to help you not just say, okay, Jeremiah was writing at this time to these people, but they'll also provide some insight of how he fits with other prophets, of maybe even what the prophets were trying to do, um, who were the kings, well, you know what, the, and there's just a lot of supplementary articles that will help you can't understand what's going on, especially in the prophetic books. That becomes really, really valuable. 
Um, there's one particular book that I really like for what we've been talking about, like biblical theology, tracing themes, and that's the New Dictionary of Biblical Theology. Uh, it's a little bit pricey. It's a little bit heavy. Um, I do think there's going to be a second edition from what I heard because the guy that I studied under was like the key guy on that, Brian Rossner. And uh, I think they are going to come out with the second edition in the next few years, but it'll be several years away. But that book traces themes through the Bible. It does two things. One, it'll trace themes throughout the whole Bible as the Bible unfolds. And it'll kind of be like, here's this theme of hospitality in the Torah. And here's what we learn about hospitality in the historical books or however they want to divide these. And then they'll say, here's what we learn about hospitality in the Old Testament. And then they'll do the same thing in the New Testament. Here's what we see about hospitality in the whole Bible. That is, those articles are really, really helpful. They expose you to the whole Bible. And then the other thing that they do in the other half of the book is they'll say, here's what uh, Exodus hmm. is about. And it would be like another level up above those study Bible yeah. entries. But not so technical, like buying a massive commentary on Exodus that you probably, you know, a lot of people wouldn't even be able to really engage with. It would be like the study Bible level, but much more. And, yeah. and those those entries, if you wanted to really study a book of the Bible, would be really helpful. Yeah, believe it or not, in February 2020, I read through that entire volume because I was getting ready to take a biblical theology yeah. class. What did you, you think? Know? I loved it. I thought it was so helpful. And now when I prepare sermons, I'll pull that out. Or if I'm like, addressing a topic, you know, drawing something out more mm -hmm. than others, like peace or something yeah. else like that. I just pick that up. It's so easy to read, mm -hmm. but written by really scholarly, well-studied people. So it's not like it's, you know, a collection of people who don't know what they're talking about. Mm -hmm. They're very well done, yep. but very, very clear. So I I like that. Yeah. And basically they the you have a couple editors you know, that were really involved in the whole thing. But basically what they did is they said, who wrote the best work out there on First Corinthians mm -hmm. or on Galatians? You know, who, who has written in the last couple of decades one of the definitive works on that book? And they said they probably have like some huge, really in-depth, maybe hard to read kind of book. And they said, would you be willing to write kind of an intro that's accessible for people that's more than a study Bible? that traces through the themes and helps people understand what's going yep. on in this book. And it's those people who wrote the section on Galatians. Yeah. And so it's like the fruit of all of their years of study. And mm -hmm. so it's a great, great resource. And and they have recommended resources kind of in their bibliographies <laughs> where if you want to trace something down further, you can, which is different than... And they recommend themselves. Yeah. And all the things... Yeah, a lot of them are by themselves. <laughs> yes. But if you look at your average study Bible, there's usually a list of contributors that will show who wrote mm -hmm. the notes for which book. And obviously those notes get changed by the publisher as well. Mm -hmm. So there's kind of hand in hand, but you can then look up that person and find commentaries. Mm -hmm. And a lot of them have written like that NIV application commentary. That's a maybe more helpful aid. Some of those volumes aren't yeah. as good as others, but you can trace through who the authors are to maybe even more in-depth resources if you're interested. Mm -hmm. Are there any other resources that you'd think the common you know, average non-professor um, should have. Yeah, are, and are we talking about just on the story of the Bible? Or are we talking about... Both the story of the Bible and just uh, for regular reading of Scripture. Yeah, I think some of just the tools that, you know, are like Scripture journals, things like that, where it's basically just a text, but you can... It's easy for you to write mm -hmm. things out 
to write out your own thoughts, your own questions. I think those are really helpful little tools. They don't add extra insight, but they're just simple kinds of things. Um, but if you wanted to read some things on maybe like the whole Bible and getting a feel for what we've been talking about, uh, D.A. Carson has a book called The God Who Is There, which is, I think, his most accessible book that he wrote. But if you've ever read anything by Carson, it's still a little bit you know, sure. hard. But it but it's, it is really nice. It's written where you don't need any knowledge of the Bible and it walks through the whole story. That's a really good book. It was based on a, like a lecture series that he did. So I think it's available that way as well. Um, yeah, I would, I definitely recommend that when I was teaching this course regularly on story of scripture, I would require the book by Duval and Hayes called living God's word. And that is another, uh, really good book, uh, by Zondervan that kind of walks you through, the whole Bible. I like ones that go from cover to cover. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a bunch of other things from Eden to the New Jerusalem yep. by Desmond Alexander. And th- there's a bunch of other things like this. Um, those those give you big picture, whole Bible, kind of doing, you know, what what I'm doing in the, in the study that I've been putting uh, together. I'd highly commend uh, those ones. And then when it comes to individual books of the Bible that you're interested in, there's some really good resources with like best commentaries you know, .com or whatever, that's the mm-hmm. website, or Tim Challies is a Christian blogger who does a lot of this kind of thing as well, and, and they'll help you get a feel for here are some of the good books that are out there, but it just depends what you're, what you're looking for, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, if you are really looking at studying one book, or if you're trying to understand a little bit more how to study the Bible, or if you're trying to understand the whole story of the Bible, um, there's also a series called New Studies in Biblical Theology. There are like all these kind of weird shades of gray. Yeah. yeah. They're all slightly different. If, if Aaron probably has them next to, and probably bothers him. It it on, does because library. they're all next to each other and some are bluish gray, some are pale. It yeah. It is very strange. Yeah, I do not understand exactly why they did that, but, but those basically take one theme and they write a whole book about that theme is the, is the norm. Yeah. Sometimes they're on a specific book of the Bible, but like, like the book of Isaiah, a friend of mine wrote on kingdom, I think in Isaiah. And that's, that's really good. These are a little bit meteor kind of yeah. books, but there are some of those that trace like temple throughout the yep. whole Bible, things like that. And that goes a lot deeper than the other books yeah. I've been mentioning. And and maybe an alternative that's a little bit of a lighter reading load. Crossway has put out this short studies in biblical yes. theology. They're different publishers, but I kind of think of them as like doing the same thing at different yeah. different levels. Yep. yep, those would be a lot more accessible. Those are brand new. Yeah. Well, Brian, you mentioned the New Studies in Biblical Theology series, and there's one by a guy named Stephen Dempster called Dominion and Dynasty. My favorite one. I remember reading that through that for the first time and being confronted with the reality of canonical arrangement. Mm -hmm. Um, And I had never really thought about that. I think maybe at times as I had seen chronological Bibles marketed, and I kind of wondered how they actually knew what the chronology was necessarily, but... Um, there are popular arrangements of the Bible, um, and it might even influence the way that we read the Bible. Um, is there anything that you want people to know when they come to their Bibles about canonical arrangement? Yes. Yeah, so uh, in the uh, story of scripture study that I was talking about, so I tend to focus on the Tanakh order of the Torah, the We'll go through the Hebrew ones, but basically the Torah, the prophets, and the writings, okay, which is a slightly different, it is a different order than what we have in our English 
Bibles. And so I do tend to prioritize that when I'm walking through the story of Scripture. Um, having said that, I think there's great value in both orders. And I don't make big arguments about like one needing to crush the other. Uh, they both have been really, ben- they have benefited the church uh, for centuries. And there's reasons behind uh, both of the of the orders. And I think we have to remember that Though the so so if you're not familiar with this uh, discussion, basically the Hebrew what people call the Hebrew order or the Hebrew what goes into a Hebrew Bible, you know, which is like for us the Old Testament, it'll go Genesis to Kings, basically. The Book of Ruth will be in a different place, but but Genesis to Kings, and then instead of going to Chronicles, which is what happens in English Bibles, it goes to the prophets. What we think of as the prophets. Uh, and you'll either see Jeremiah in that spot, uh, or typically you'll see Isaiah in that spot, although there's some debate about that because there's some really old evidence that Jeremiah may have been the next book, which Jeremiah and Kings ends exactly the same way. You should go look that up. Look at the last chapter of Kings and the last chapter of Jeremiah, and they're like the same exact chapter. No way. So there's there's some things to think about with that, but basically then it goes to the prophets, and then it comes back to the writings, which would be what we would think of as like the wisdom books, the poetry books, Psalms being kind of the key book of that. And so there's some evidence that Jesus, when he talks with the guys on the road to Emmaus, affirms something like that when it says he talked with them from the law, the prophets, and the Psalms, that that would be the Tanakh order. Mm-hmm. Okay, but again, the church has for centuries been using the order that we have, which ends with the prophetic books. And I think that's really where you see some of the ramifications of it. So in the Hebrew order, the Old Testament ends with Chronicles, Mm -hmm. which puts a big emphasis on, i.e. Stephen Dempster's book, dominion Mm -hmm. and dynasty. And so if you read Genesis and Chronicles and think about those two and how much they focus on land and how much they focus on dynasty or seed, you can see that that really is fitting Mm-hmm. to see these big themes in the Old Testament. And then if you think of Chronicles ending the Hebrew Bible and Matthew beginning the New Testament, and it begins with a genealogy, which basically is reaching back to Chronicles and moving forward to Jesus, whom we call the Christ, like that is a very interesting connection. But if you look at our English Bible, which ends in the prophetic literature, with Malachi and the hope of Elijah coming, and you read the Gospel of Luke and read that, you can see clearly in Luke chapter 1, he is trying to tie the birth of John the Baptist into this prophecy about Elijah at the end of Malachi. Yep. And so I think even in the New Testament, both endings, if you will, the, the Gospel writers are directly tying the story of Jesus into those endings. And so I, I just think it adds some things to think about Every once in a while, it'll give you some, you know, like when we read Ruth after Judges, we say, oh, Ruth was lived during the time of the Judges. But if Ruth was somewhere else. Like after Proverbs 31, for example. Like after Proverbs 31, you're like, oh, Ruth is a lot like that virtuous yeah. woman. Or Ruth, 
you know, being before the Psalms or something like that or connected to the Psalms, since Ruth ends by pointing us to David and the Psalms are primarily viewed as the book of David, though they're from a bunch of different people, um, you know, that would be like an intro to David who yep. becomes the writer of Psalms. And so there's these different things, you know, especially when you read, what I really would focus on though is Genesis to Kings tells this, the main story mm-hmm. of the Old Testament. And so that's where in my own teaching on this, that's what I emphasize. If you want to know the story of the Old Testament, like consecutively, chronologically, just read Genesis to Kings. And then what you do with the other books is you try to see how those books fit into that story. The other books don't really advance the story, but they fit into it. They supplement, they complement that story. But, But again, I would not put too much emphasis on this because both of these orders have been really valuable. Uh, mm-hmm. For the church, they just maybe highlight different things, and it raises good questions for us to think about. And then we also have to remember that what are we even talking about when we talk about the order? I think that's something people miss. Like, what there wasn't a book mm-hmm. that had Genesis to Chronicles. Like, what are we talking about? Scrolls? Like, in the order that they put the scrolls? Like, yeah. You know, in the synagogue or something? Like, I think there's evidence that there was this idea, but don't think of this as there being a book yeah. you know, that had these orders in them. There was no book that had Genesis to Malachi or Genesis yep. to Chronicles, where that's not the nature of the stuff until much later when codexes started to be made and you could actually bind books together like this and have, have that. Yeah, and it probably, at least in Jesus's time, the primary place where you're hearing these texts read is the synagogue, and they're following particular reading patterns based on the year, calendar year, and the festivals and these other things. But um, I think one of the upshots of reading through the Old Testament with a Hebrew Bible arrangement um, is that you don't get through all the narrative and then stuck in prophets in wisdom literature. Hey, I'm preaching through the prophets. I'm um, stuck in prophets. You know, I mean, you know what I mean. Like you, you get into this tough slogging and then you end it, you know, so for a few of us read through the Bible this year, mm-hmm. you know, and we followed the Christian Bible arrangement. And if you end the Old Testament with with the prophets, like it's easy to get lost in there mm-hmm. and you don't return back to the narrative. So then as you're getting into the New Testament, you know, we read some simultaneously, yeah. but but I, I thought, man, it would be easier to read through the Old Testament mm-hmm. if it were arranged with that law of prophets writings. Oh sure. And I think separating Kings and Chronicles is a huge thing. Yep. You know, it's it's like you have these different points when somebody's trying to read the Bible in a year or whatever they're trying to do where they get bogged down and they stop. You know, you say yeah. number one would be like the end of Exodus. People think it's Leviticus, but it's actually the end of Exodus is when people get tripped up with all the the stuff about the tent mm-hmm. construction. And then another one of those would be when you get through Kings, which is pretty interesting. And then you start reading Chronicles, which, re, you know, charts the same territory from a different angle, but you get really stuck in, in Chronicles. But if you separate those two, they probably both become far more interesting, especially Chronicles, if it's ending yeah. the Old Testament. So I think there's a lot, it's a lot of fun, a lot of value. Yeah. I actually use that order as I try to explain the story, because I think it's easier to explain the relationship of the books mm-hmm. through the Hebrew order. But I just don't want to overstate it, which is I think happens in some books that are really trying to make this like argument that basically the Christian order that we've had for all these centuries is like deficient. And so yeah. I don't I don't want to go there. Yeah, one of my uh professors 
refers to that Hebrew arrangement as Jesus's Bible mm-hmm. and makes a strong case that that's how we must be reading it. And I think a, a major publisher will publish it an edition of the Bible arranged that way in part because of those arguments. But I appreciate the perspective of my my supervisor who has a biblical theology coming out that he teamed up with a guy named Greg Goswell, who's very into canonical arrangement. And in each section, they'll talk about the way that it's arranged in the Hebrew format and mm-hmm. in the Christian Bible and the implications of how that might shed light on mm-hmm. the way you read it. And I think that's a really good way forward yep. is to say, let's consider both of them and and recognize that not every book will have as much impact on it because of its arrangement as others. Mm-hmm. Um, so we don't have to try to force more you know, into this paratext idea or the yep. arrangement than what occurs kind of naturally. Yeah, and, and just so everybody's uh, clear as well, th- we're not talking about different books. Mm-hmm. You might call the minor, what we call the minor prophets, might be called the book of the 12. And so you might see that there's different numbers of books in the Hebrew Bible than in our English Bibles. Uh, for the Old Testament, but that's actually not, it's the same content, mm-hmm. just instead of calling it like Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, so forth, it would be called the Book of the Twelve. But we're actually talking about the same books, it's just talking about the arrangement mm-hmm. of the books. Yeah, well, I think that's an interesting discussion, and um, one I had not thought about, you know, until a few years mm-hmm. ago. But um, when we talk about the Old Testament and Jesus's Bible, you know, we're, we're remembering it's not a codex, it's not a book that Jesus carried around like us, but he certainly knew the old te- what we call the Old Testament, Israel scriptures, Hebrew Bible. Do you, I mean, do you have a preference for the terminology you use? Uh, I don't, I use all of those. The First so, Testament? I don't, I don't say First and Second Testament. I, yeah, I, I will say Old Testament, even in the scholarly thing, like for like my dissertation or whatever, I, I mm. tended to use Old Testament and just said, that's what people typically call it. So yeah. I'm just going to call it that. But yeah, I mean, I like Hebrew Bible, Israel scriptures is a common one mm-hmm. um, because I think there can be an issue with saying Old Testament that we just think of it as old obsolete or we think that the New Testament writers actually thought of it that way. Like this was scripture. Yeah. Like Paul says, Timothy, continue in the things you've learned from scriptures, from the scriptures. Yep. Like that was what it was. The scriptures that they were reading in the early church were the Old Testament. They weren't thinking of the New Testament text until later as some of it becomes written and uh, viewed as authoritative. So so I do like to use different things, but I don't oppose. Yeah. Um, well, as you mentioned earlier, uh, the church for a long time, Christians had as their scriptures what we think of the Old Old Testament. That's, mm-hmm. that's what they had. Um, and as we read the New Testament, I really like the end of Luke's gospel where Jesus is walking on the road to Emmaus with these two disciples. And he's like, why are you guys so sad? And they're like, well, we thought this there was a Messiah and he was going to restore Israel and all these things. And it just, you know, he died. It's been three days. And then Jesus, ex, you know, hides himself from them, his identity, and explains everything about himself in the, the mm. scriptures and... Um, then it's not until, at least in the way I'm, I'm understanding it, it's not until he um, breaks bread, maybe a, a communion mm-hmm. imagery there with them, that they actually see him. Yeah. And maybe there's something to learn there about the way that uh, Christ meets with his people. Mm-hmm. But um, when they go on to tell other people, they're like, didn't our hearts burn within us? That's one of my favorite yes. phrases in Scripture. <laughs> and um, I think when I read the Old Testament, 
even when I'm reading it with a messianic lens sometimes, my heart does not burn within mm-hmm. me. Mm-hmm. But at other times, there are texts that are just so clearly messianic that it's it's really um, enriching. So as I read the Old Testament or you read the Old Testament, how how would you share the gospel? How, how would you do what Jesus did um, from the Old Testament? Well, I don't know if the question is like, without the New Testament, you know, am I like being precluded from? Yeah. So let me give you a thought scenario here. Mm-hmm. So I, on occasion, whenever I preach an Old Testament book, I meet with this rabbi mm-hmm. and talk about it sure. because they, they read it within the framework of all their customs. Sure. And that's really enriching for me. Um, if I were hanging out with this guy, it's like, okay, seriously, I, I don't think the New Testament is sure. scripture, but we're reading the same Hebrew Bible. Tell me, okay, sure. tell me about Jesus from that. Yeah. Yeah. So I think, you know, when you look at what Jesus did, you know, on the road, it talks about he showed them the things about himself from the law, the prophets, and the Psalms, you know, which I would take as that basically the Hebrew order of the Old Testament law, prophets, and writings. And so I think one thing you would try to do is to try to show from not just one text, but from multiple places that what God promised in the Old Testament, he did in and through Jesus. Now, I think how God promised these things or gave indicators of these things is not always the same. And I think we have to be careful about our how we talk about like promise and fulfillment or prophecy and fulfillment because they're very different kinds of things. Like there are things that foreshadowed things. There are things that are corresponding to things. Um, There are direct prophecies too that like say like this in Bethlehem, there will be a son born who will take the throne of David. And so when Herod hears from the wise men that they're looking around for a king and he talks with his guys, hey guys, where's the Messiah supposed to be born? They don't look at like something that was foreshadowed or something. They, they say, oh, Micah said it's going to be in Bethlehem. They knew exactly where the Messiah was supposed to be born. So you have like direct prophecy, direct fulfillment. And so I would highlight some of those, but you also have like patterns and things like the sacrificial system, like what it shows about the need for blood, the need for atonement, uh, for the forgiveness of sins or the Passover lamb and and the blood of the lamb being what leads god to pass over the the people and spare the people like there are signs of this the need for um yeah i mean just sacrifice in general throughout the old testament you have um things about god wanting to dwell with his people and it keeps heightening you know and how that culminates in god actually taking on flesh. So like I would just say there's going to be a lot of differences in how the New Testament uses fulfillment mm-hmm. language about these Old Testament things. So like when you're reading Hebrews, it's going to highlight a lot of the ceremonies, the events in some texts. But in other places, it's highlighting mostly the text, you know, that said this will happen. There'll be a person who comes. And so I would try to do both of those things in how I would tell the gospel from the Old Testament. I talk about creation, about the fall, about the promise, and I would trace that promise through specific text. But along the way, uh, which which because those promises point to there's going to be a specific 
king who will come and crush God's enemies and take us back to the way things used to be. But then there's through themes about like atonement and blood and sacrifice and God wanting to dwell with us. And even though it's really hard because we're sinners, God really is committed to have a people and to dwell with those people. And you see that in the tent and in the, and in the temple and maybe highlighting some of those things about the need for a sacrificial lamb, if you will, and raising the questions to a Jewish person like, is the blood of an innocent animal really a sufficient substitute for a rebellious human being? Like, mm -hmm. you know, even at the Day of Atonement, this is probably the highest point in the Old Testament, you know, in terms of how God actually makes it possible for a sinner to be with him. But, but even then, are those innocent animals really sufficient substitutes? You know, and then looking maybe at texts like Isaiah 53, which of course a Jewish person might, you know, who's not a Christian might not think it's about Jesus, but it certainly is fitting to see that God would raise up a servant who would be a son of David. And I think when you look at the rest of Isaiah and, and would place on him the sins of us all, and then that he would seemingly after death still rise and see his offspring and be blessed and, and bring and, and cause many people to be accounted righteous uh, through him. You know, th those would be the kinds of things that I would try to highlight um, in it. So both, specific themes and texts and prophecies, but also like these more institutions or events like Passover and things that signify that something greater is going to happen. And I think that's how the New Testament writers and Jesus actually read the Old Testament. Um, but it's interesting, Jesus's own, uh, just as an encouragement for us, I think, in Jesus's own explanation in Luke 24, his disciples, he summarized that the scripture said the Messiah needed to suffer, mm -hmm. rise, and that forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, that all three of those things were what scripture prophesied. And I think sometimes we only think of the two, but Jesus actually said that the third thing is that this good news needs to be sent out to all nations. Mm -hmm. And Jesus then ascends, which is yeah. like the great thing about the end of Luke, because it's like, that third thing he hasn't really done mm -hmm. at that point. He's done the suffering and he's done the rising, but he hasn't done the proclaiming to all the nations. And I think that's part of the end of Luke is which is passing that responsibility onto his people. Jesus yeah. still does it, but he does it now through his body, through the church. And uh, that should give us encouragement to go out and share the news. Yeah, yeah. Even as Israel's scriptures point forward, Luke's gospel points forward to Acts, where Jesus's mm -hmm. followers are so closely identified with him that when they get persecuted by Saul, Saul mm -hmm. says, "You're persecuting me." Mm -hmm. So Jesus is at work, yep. continuing through his followers. Um, yeah, as we finished, we did four weeks in Luke's gospel for Christmas time, mm -hmm. and um, looking at the emphasis on salvation. Um, you know, as a forgiveness of sin. So when Zechariah prophesies about John, he says that he'll make known salvation through the forgiveness of sin. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I wonder as we read the the coming together of the biblical narrative, as we start to shape our conception of what salvation actually is, we start to get some of these pieces that are definitely clear reading backwards, mm -hmm. um, but going through it for the first time, you know, we might we might not see what mm -hmm. Jesus is, is saying or what God is yeah. saying in those texts until 
later on where we have the teaching of Jesus to um, show us what what he wants us to attend to. Mm-hmm. So are there any um, particular books that you might recommend? I know some people in our church love to jump in and read these theological works. I'm thinking maybe reading backwards by Hayes, the little one mm-hmm. would be a good good starting point to think about it. Um, but any any other resources that might help people read the Old Testament as Christians? Um, yeah, I can't, I can't, nothing comes to mind that would be like a must read other than some of the books that maybe we've mentioned earlier. Sure. Um, but not, not a lot in terms of reading a book about evangelism, for example, that would highlight this, but I think there's, I mean, you can read from good tracks even that Mm -hmm. there are, you know, tracks that walk through the story of scripture and try to show us that, because I think. I'm thinking of, you know, Muslim friends, for mm-hmm. example. Like, one of the biggest barriers for a person who's coming from a Muslim perspective to the story of Jesus, besides that's that most of them don't believe he actually died on the cross, is that they don't see the, that we actually believe that the New Testament fulfills the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. Like, there's more of a narrative that the Old Testament was given and it was flawless, but then later it was corrupted. Yep. And so then God spoke again through Jesus and the New Testament was perfect for a while and then it was corrupted and then God spoke through the through the Quran which has never been corrupted. That's why there's no translations, that's where you know the, in the in, mm-hmm. in their thinking. And and so one of the things like in those kind of conversations so not just with a Jewish person but like with a person coming from a Muslim perspective that I would always try to highlight is that what God promised to do in the Israel scriptures God did in Jesus. Mm-hmm. And so I think getting out there and actually having the conversations is the best way yeah. to learn. <laughs> yeah, yeah, being put to the test. Um, and and that could be intimidating for people, but I think it's probably important to say, um, in one way, you can never be prepared enough to where you will never say the wrong thing or mm-hmm. stumble. And it's okay to, in those yep. conversations to say, you know what, I've, I've got to think about that. Yep. Let's hang out again yep, and, and do the work of talking to pastors or grabbing resources and, and following through on it. Mm-hmm. Yep. And remembering salvation is from the Lord, ultimately. Yeah. You know, not, but, not from your cogent explanation of the yep. fulfillment of prophecy. Yep. Because you can explain things really, really well, and still someone will have no interest yeah. in responding. You know? But that's where I, I think just circling back to some conversations from earlier about you know, just that maybe thinking through whether it's a couple key text or a couple characters from the story I think can that you want to highlight if you get a chance to share you know the, the gospel with someone because I think we, we we're past the point in America where we're gonna just tell somebody the Ten Commandments and then they're gonna be like oh you know please help me know how to be forgiven like that that's great if that happens but that's probably not gonna be the case there's gonna be a lot more storytelling mm-hmm. and so just practically, having a couple text in your mind or a couple characters that you want to highlight. And actually you could practice that on your own. Not that you're going to like have a script or something, but you could try to say, could I actually tell the story from Adam to Abraham Mm -hmm. and then from Abraham to David, you know, and from David to a a prophet, you know, and then from there to Jesus, Yeah, you know, can I do that? And, and people can grow, you can grow in that. Yeah, that might be a great family devotion exercise or hanging out with friends, just talking through these things mm-hmm. and workshopping together on, yeah, how, how would we summarize this story? 
And I bet you could even find a text in the Torah, the writings, and the prophets Mm -hmm. and tell the story of Jesus. Mm -hmm. Well, Brian, thank you for talking about the Bible. This has been really enjoyable, and I trust it'll be helpful for everyone listening. And I'll just remind everyone again of the resource that you've been working on, and Lord willing, we'll finish by the end of the week where we can um, hear the story of Scripture. And we'll link that in in the notes to this so people can just click right in there. But thanks again for joining us and serving us in this way. Hey, thanks so much. It's been great.